All right, good morning, guys. Howdy. Howdy. <laughs> Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are working our way through the book of Acts. And so grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. And uh, if you're using one of our black Bibles, you're going over to page 912. And um, we're going to be continuing to dig in. While you're turning over there, um, I want to highlight an opportunity for you. Um, the announcements in your bulletin uh, each week uh, uh, highlight ways that you can be involved or ways that we can serve you or ways you can serve. And one of the things I want to point out is, is if you've been around for a little while and, and you've been thinking about connecting with community, um, but you haven't taken the step, we do have a connect group. And a connect group is basically a way to dip your toe into the pool of community to decide if it's for you, right? Um, and so we unpack a very specific study over that time. It's a little bit different than our normal community groups. Um, we actually go through a, a nine-week study that looks at specifically how the gospel impacts all of life um, and frees you and blesses you in beautiful ways. And so that group is starting up on March 1st. If you are not part of a community group, and you would like to join this Connect group as a way to um, enter into the study, potentially to study, to find out a little bit more about who we are and how we how we work. Visit Connection Point and uh, and make sure that you um, let them know, and we will connect you with the proper information for that. Okay. All right, in Acts chapter 4, just to give you a little bit of context, a lot of crazy stuff's been going on uh, so far in our letter, our, our, our study. Um, Acts begins basically after the resurrection. Jesus meets with his disciples and says to them, I, I have a mission for you, and that mission is very simple. I want you to go out and be my witnesses. I want you to be people who, who drink deeply of the love of God and then move out in that love and share that love with others. That's why I'm leaving you here. And, uh, and then he takes off, right? Beginning of the book of Acts, we have the ascension of Jesus and uh, this, this group of, of disciples left behind. Uh, Jesus does say, look, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit um, as a, uh, in a unique way to empower you for this mission. He's going to come on you and he's going to both um, change you internally as you, as you go deep in the love of God, but also work through you powerfully as you share the love of God. And so we see that happening in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And, and so far, um, it has been just pretty incredible, um, pretty incredible. We, we've seen a lot of people um, believing. We've seen people heal. We've seen people moving into radical generosity and, and sharing of their lives. And, and uh, it's been awesome. Um, last week, we took a look at the, the beginning of the resistance to the early church, the first steps toward persecution. Um, because as the kingdom of God is proclaimed, as the love of God is, is opened up, it threatens men's power structures. It, it threatens their position, the way they get glory and establish their authority on earth. And as a result, they get pretty violent. Uh, they, get, they get pretty angry about it. We started looking at that last week. And in, in the middle of this, we're going to take a look at that again next week. That story is continuing to unfold. But in the middle of it, we have this crazy story today. I'm just going to tell you, there's a couple people that are going to die today, okay, um, in our text, and, and, and we're going to take a look at why they died and what it means for us, okay? Now, here's the thing. When you teach straight through the books of the Bible, you, you come to crazy stuff, and you teach it, and that's what we do. We take the book of Acts, we start at the beginning, and we work our way through, and as a result, um, it's pretty cool, but I think sometimes God takes challenging passages and teaches us very deep and powerful things. So take a look. We're going to begin in verse 32, and uh, we're going to break uh, the passage up into two parts today because it falls naturally into two parts. Um, 
But we're going to take a look, first of all, at verses 32 through 37 in chapter 4. So follow along with me. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so our text this morning begins with another glimpse into um, just the, the heartbeat of the early church, the vibrancy, the life, the generosity, the joy, and the love um, as, as people are believing in Jesus. And, and, and it's like, holy cow, Jesus rose from the dead, and that means the inauguration of a whole new kingdom. This isn't all there is. There's something more. Right? This life isn't the end of the story. There's a greater story, and our stories are being retold in that story of, of redemption and, uh, and reconciliation and restoration. Right? And so as a result, we just see this incredible outpouring of generosity in the early church. And, and it's because of passages like this that a lot of people uh, are like, man, I just wish we could get back to the early church experience. And I don't blame them. They're normally not talking about the persecution, Right? They're usually not talking about the sacrifice that, that came with um, this outpouring of joy, um, but it is a rich, rich experience of love and generosity and mutual valuing. Right? This, was, this was the kind of community that, that was worth sacrificing to be part of, right? The openness and the healing and the joy. And there's a lot of momentum taking place in the early church. The apostles are out there preaching about the resurrection of Jesus every day, and, 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 and people are, are believing, and their numbers are swelling, right? They, they started with 120 people, right? There are now over 10,000, right? Just rapid growth and, 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 and numerous people becoming believers and, and uh, swelling numbers and swelling popularity among the people. And because of the radical nature of the needs of the early church, it required radical sacrifice of those that were part of the church, right? This was during the time of Pentecost. People had traveled from all over the known world to to worship uh, God at the Feast of Pentecost and be part of that cultural celebration. They came, they became believers of Jesus, and they stayed (laughs) because they couldn't go home and go to a different church. There were none, right? This This was the birth of the church, and so they stayed and became part of the community, which created a tremendous amount of stress, right? There were a lot of people that needed to be housed and fed and clothed, and, and, and there were people that needed to take care of their business at home before they could have their needs met right here. And, and as a result, people just responded. They looked around and they saw the community of faith. They looked around and saw their brothers and sisters in Christ. They looked around and, and started understanding this idea of being one body, a body of believers with one head, Jesus. And in the same way, if, if there's a, a member of your body that is in pain, all the other members of your body work together to protect, to heal, and to you know, take care of the hurting member, the early church functioned in the same way with a radical outpouring of generosity and, and sacrifice, right? They just understood God's kingdom is coming. The resurrection has occurred. And as a result, it's, it's so foolish to think that I need to hold so tightly 
to what I have here. This experience, this money, these possessions, this glory. I mean, it's just all passing away. And so they lived in light of the greater coming and the the greater kingdom. They lived in light of the resurrection and understood that the hoarding of what was here was pure foolishness. And we see crazy, crazy generosity, right? Selling everything they have. We've got people who have had uh, land, right? They've invested in property and they're just selling it, right? It's like, and then they come, what do they do with the money? Without strings, they just come and lay it at the apostles' feet. And they're like, there are people around here who have needs. There are people here who are hurting. Use this money to take care of them. My needs are met. I'm not hungry. I have clothes, right? I, I got some place to sleep. To take care of them, right? I'm content, <laughs> right? They had discovered the incredible gift of contentment, right? Which, which is this satisfaction that comes from having your deepest needs fed in the right place, your deepest appetites. Man, you're feasting on the grace of God, so you don't need to feast on possessions or worldly glory or temporal pleasures. You're feasting on on the presence of God. You're feasting on love, the love of God communicated to you in Christ and the love of people as, as they love you and reach out to you, right? So in that place of tremendous contentment, they found tremendous freedom and they sacrificed. And that sacrifice was, was uh, beautiful. All right, so a couple things on this. First of all, there are, there are a number of people, and, and I would agree with them, that would point out that this is not what we would call a normative experience of the church. All right, this was an example that was being laid down that everyone else is supposed to follow, that, that, that I'm, I'm, this morning I am not going to ask you to come and lay your money at my feet. You can feel safe. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to sell your stocks and bonds and, and cash out your retirement account and, and uh, you know, wherever else you've invested your money. That's just not going to happen this morning. Um, this is not a normative experience of the church. It was a unique stage with unique needs, and the church responded in a unique way. Now, while this is, the behavior is not normative, the attitude behind it is. Absolutely. Anywhere... Grace is experienced deeply. Generosity flows freely. Anywhere grace is experienced deeply, generosity flows freely. If we were in a similar situation to the early church and we had brothers and sisters in Christ all around us who were hungry and in need, I would hope we would rise up in the same way. I would hope that even today, we're more inclined to give than to hoard, to care for others than to protect ourselves, to move out in love, to see others blessed rather than, than just thinking about how do I protect my pleasure, my kingdom, my glory, my experience, right? Grace changes us. When God gives us his best, right, it frees us from having to hoard the rest, Right? So in this context, we're introduced to a guy um, named Joseph, whom the apostles renamed Barnabas. Barnabas is a name that means son of encouragement. And, and at this point in time, when you're reading through this, you're like, well, who's this Barnabas guy? And some of you may still be wondering, who's this Barnabas guy? Barnabas becomes a huge figure in the New Testament, one of the most important leaders in the early church. What's interesting is, is that he's one of those guys who was a huge presence in the background, right? 
He's not like the Apostle Paul where, where everybody knows the Apostle Paul. Even today, there are debates about the Apostle Paul, and everybody's talking about the Apostle Paul. Barnabas is one of these guys that, by and large, you can ignore in the story of the text. But when you really dig in and, and read it, you realize what a huge impact he had on the early church. He was this guy that, that um, was deeply shaped by grace. And as a result... Um, they renamed him, right? From Joseph to Barnabas, son of encouragement. That means the apostles noticed this guy before he gave the property, right? Because he was the kind of guy that was generous, right? He, he freely gave life instead of taking it, right? So that meant he used his words for encouragement. It meant to use his, his presence to, to give love and, and draw people toward Christ and, and, and to embody the love of God. He wasn't sitting around thinking about how do I protect my experience? How do I get myself ahead? How do I, how do I um, make myself happy? He was consumed with and thinking about generosity because he had received so richly, he was giving so freely. And as a result, it's not surprising that when the opportunity came, he sold a field and gave the money to the apostles. It was just the natural outflowing of grace coming in and freeing his heart. And we see that outflowing through the rest of his life. We're going to see this in the book of Acts as we move forward. Uh, Barnabas, you don't have Barnabas, you don't have Paul. Barnabas became the first mentor and discipler of the apostle Paul. And in fact, in, in the, as we continue to read through, I'll point it out now, you're going to find that, that for the first half of their partnership, it's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And then suddenly there's a switch where it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. The student becomes the teacher. But it was Barnabas who, who fostered that and discipled him and poured his life into this guy, Paul, who was uh, such an unlikely convert. Barnabas had a huge impact um, on the early church through the expression of his generosity. What we see is he's a true leader. He doesn't hold an official position in the early church, but he exercises true leadership by simply living out the reality of the gospel. Are you catching me? Like he's just, he's just living it out. He's not, he's, not, he's not on the payroll of the church. He's not employed by the church. He doesn't have an official title in the church. He is a guy who has simply drunk deeply of the grace of God. And in drinking, he has become drunk. Not drunk in a worldly sense, but drunk on grace. And as a result, he is just truly rich. And he freely shares. Barnabas is the kind of guy that's rich in the things that truly make rich. He's the kind of guy that has real joy, right? So the next account, as we continue to read through, the next account stands in stark contrast to what we've just read about the experience of the church as a whole and the specific of Barnabas specifically. So take a look at chapter 5. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard about these things. Okay, that's an unexpected turn, you know? You're just reading along and it's like, hey, everything's all happy and roses and good in the early church and transformation and love and sharing of peace and generosity and yeah, you're dead, right? These two, they show up and um, man, things just take a sudden turn. Everything is good. Everyone's generous. God's doing incredible stuff. And then God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. Seriously, what the heck? I mean, what's going on here, right? I mean, you're looking at this and it's like this sudden like it's just a change in tone. It seems to be a change in direction with everything that's happening. Why does God do this? And why does he do it here? Right? I mean, in the last chapter, the Sanhedrin arrested the apostles for healing a lame man. They kept him in prison. They verbally assaulted them and and insulted them and threatened them. Right? In the next chapter, give you a little hint of next week. They're going to re-arrest them. This time they're going to physically abuse them. And guess what never happens to the Sanhedrin? They don't get struck dead, <laughs> right? I mean, why here? These guys give money to the church and they get whacked, right? Right? The apostles take up an offering and they give money, right? And and Peter's like, you could have just kept it, right? It was yours. You could have just kept it, but too late. You're dead. Um, All right. So so we know that they lied about the purchase price of the land, and that's really the crux of the issue, right? That's really what it comes down to. Peter says, it was your land. You could have done what you wanted with it. And then you sold it. It was your money. You could have done with you, what you want with it. But you came and you said, just like Barnabas, that you're giving the entire proceeds to the church to take care of the needy. And you lied. You kept some of it back for yourself. Um, so you die. Um, why did they do it? I mean, really, why did they do it? Why would they lie? Why would they go through the trouble? of pretending to be more generous than they were? Why would they go through the hassle of selling property they didn't have to sell, to give money they didn't have to give, but to do it in a way that was fraudulent, to do it in a way that misrepresented what they were doing, right? I think, I think it's because they actually watched Barnabas, to tell you the truth. Um, I think they saw Barnabas. And Barnabas got a lot of attention. Barnabas got noticed by the leadership. Barnabas seemed to be moving toward the inner circle. In fact, he even got a special nickname. The apostles, right, they gave him a special nickname. And they saw that. They saw the leaders pay attention to him. And they saw the leaders give him a name. And they saw other people start gravitating toward him. 
And I think they wanted some of the attention. I think they wanted some of that inner circle fame to rub off on them. They wanted to be brought up in front of the church, to have their faces up front, to have their names put on the, on the overhead, right? To have their picture put up on the website, to have their name engraved on the brick that's on the foundation of the church. They wanted the public recognition. They, they wanted some of that influence and fame and positive attention, but they didn't really want to do what was necessary to get it. And so in the process, they're like, well, we can do this, which is sacrificial, and in the same time, we can protect ourselves a little bit. I mean, what if this whole thing goes south, right? <laughs> what if this thing crashes and burns? I mean, what's it going to hurt for us to keep a little nest egg, to stay a little protected? Or, or maybe it was a way of protecting certain pleasures or freedoms that they wanted to protect that were going to cost money, right? It's like, okay, we cashed out this, this money, um, you know, we'll, we'll give this much to the church and we'll keep this much so that we can pursue this pleasure or protect this habit or, or whatever it is, right? Maybe it's just a nest egg to protect against future need. I mean, really, what is so bad about this? I mean, it's when I analyze it, it's like, okay, I get it. It doesn't seem that bad to me. And if I'm honest, it doesn't seem that foreign to me. I mean, can I, can I say I've never had the same attitude as Ananias and Sapphira? Can I say I've never wanted public attention? Can I, can I say that I've never wanted that glow of, of affirmation, of people to know my name and to know it in the positive light, to, to, to want to, to, you know what I'm saying, what fame does, that sense, they want to draw near to you. They, they, want to, they just want to rub off a little bit of your glory. They just want to give you a little bit of praise, right? Who doesn't want that, that positive vibe, that sense of, of, of being known and, and, and somewhat famous and maybe even a little loved? I mean, was Peter just in a bad mood here? Was the spirit just having a bad day and they just happened to stumble in and make the wrong mistake at the wrong time? The answer is no. And what I hope to show you is that this was, at this point, the single greatest threat the early church faced. What they did and what they represented was the single greatest threat to the experience and the mission of the early church. It seems pretty minor, but it wasn't. In fact, take a look at verses 3 and 4 again, because I want to highlight something. In verses 3 and 4, When Peter is talking to Ananias, he says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Ananias, why are you trying to lie to God? Satan put this in your heart. Now, how does Peter know this? Well, first of all, I think it's because the Holy Spirit is enlightening him, right? He's a leader, and God has given him supernatural discernment. And, and so he it just knows. There is something in him that triggers, and he knows this guy is lying right now. This is a misrepresentation of reality. I think it might also be a little bit of personal experience. <laughs> Remember, Peter's the guy that... that um, tried to manipulate Jesus, and, and Jesus turned around and looked him in the face and said, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? 
Peter, Satan tried to use Peter too. And, and, and Peter had to be rebuked. Peter had to be corrected, right? So, so maybe he knows a little something about how Satan can deceive and, and, and get, you know, work on our pride and, and, and use wrong motives, right? So he looks at them and he says, man, you guys, I, Ananias, I want you to hear this. What you're doing seems innocent right now. What you're doing doesn't seem like that big of a deal right now, but I can see it for what it is. It is a demonic attack on the character and the nature of the church. Satan, put this into your heart. It is his attempt to attack the church, not from out there, but in here. It is his way of trying to undercut the wholeness, the strength, and the integrity of the gospel, not by attacking it and, sub, and, and subduing it from the outside, but by corrupting it from the inside. Think about it this way. When Ananias and Sapphira conspired to lie to the Spirit, which is essentially what, what Peter's saying, when you lied to me, you were lying to me, but really you were trying to lie to God, right? You lied to the Spirit, you, who is God, right? So you're trying to lie to God. And, and when you're trying to lie to God, when you're conspiring to lie about God, you're actually conspiring to lie about God. You're not just trying to lie to God, you're trying to misrepresent God. The gospel says that um, each one of us is a sinner, that we've rejected God in our sin and our rebellion, right? The, the sin of, of Genesis 3 is replicated in each one of our hearts. We look at God and we say to God, we want to be like God. We want to be the center. We want, we want our kingdom to be the focus. We want our glory to be the center. We want our good to be the focus, right? Not your good, not your glory, not your kingdom. We want to be the center. We want to be like God. We want, we want to mark our boundaries. We want to determine our course. We want to be able to provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, feed ourselves, satisfy ourselves. We want to be independent from you, right? So each one of us has rejected God in our sin, but, but he loves us anyway. Even though we've committed cosmic treason against the kingdom of the universe and, and, and rejected him and sinned against him and defiled his image in us by embracing things that aren't God and calling them God, chasing things that are, that are created by God and looking to them to be God for us, to do for us what only God can do. God loves us anyway. And he took it upon himself to cleanse us of our guilt and our shame. His son became man and, and lived among us and he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we deserve to die. That he might be our substitute in judgment and pay the price necessary to bring us back. And when he rose again, it was the seal that said forgiveness is now available. The price has been paid. Forgiveness is available. You can believe and find new life. See, sin is our way of trying to find our deepest satisfactions the things that, that God designed us to, to find in Him outside of Him, right? Our, our deepest joy is now found not in God, but outside of God. Our need for pleasure is not found in His character and what He provides, but looking to what He provides so that we don't have to pursue His character, right? Um, sin is our attempt to be like God, to make our own meaning, establish our own glory, build our own kingdoms. Sin is, in that sense, a cosmic insanity, we're trying to feed on what isn't food and drink on what isn't drink. We're trying to find our deepest soul's needs met and satisfied in things that simply cannot satisfy them. And when they don't, we just keep pursuing. See, we were created to be completely dependent on the outpouring of God's love. 
His presence, His love, His power, His glory. We weren't designed to compete with God. We were designed to be dependent on God. We're not supposed to, to fight with God to establish our glory in contrast to His, our will in contrast to His. We were, we were designed to be completely dependent on God, to rest in God, and to find our deepest soul's needs met in the outpouring of His goodness and His presence, the outpouring of His love and His provision, to find our deepest satisfaction in His will and our will fulfilled in His and, 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 and in His provision and in His kingdom and in His glory. That's the message of the gospel. See, when Ananias and Sapphira did what they did, what they were saying was, God isn't who he says he is. God isn't fully glorious. So we need to build our own glory. Right? We need to build our own glory. Some people are more valuable than others. People who get more attention are more valuable than those who don't. People who get up front are more valuable than those who don't. People that, that everyone likes are more valuable than those that people don't like. So we want to be in that group of more valuable people. What they're saying is we need a glory. Not from God, but we establish for ourselves. We don't trust in the glory of God. We're going to set up a competing glory. We're going to actually create our own. What they were saying is that God isn't fully trustworthy. I can't trust God to provide my needs. I need to protect my own. So I need to be deceptive here because I need the glory, but I also need to protect myself. And so I'm I'm gonna keep this money back because I can't fully trust God. God is not fully trustworthy. God is not fully good. Yeah, there's, there's a nice message here about God loving me, and, and that's nice, but he's not fully satisfying. He's not fully delightful, so I need to keep back. I need to guard my heart. I need to protect this money so I can find my satisfaction outside of him. See, what they were saying as they did this, is that God's not trustworthy. God isn't who he says he is, and he hasn't done what he has said he has done. And so we're going to pretend. We're going to go through the motions. We will use God's grace to get what we really want, which is our self-glory and our self-protection. We will use God as a means to an end. Instead of approaching him as the glorious end in and of itself, the true center of all glory, the one who gives all good things, God will become a means to an end. My glory, my kingdom, my self-protection, my name. Ananias and Sapphira pretended they were part of the flow of grace, but they really just wanted to use that grace to feed their greed for self-glory and self-protection. They were the first Christian fakers. They weren't the last. But they were the first Christian fakers. They pretended to give in order to get personal glory. They pretended to sacrifice to actually get ahead. And they were using God's grace to try to gain personal glory. They were faking it. And according to God, this was a worse sin than not believing in God. According to God, this was a worse sin than persecuting those who believe in God. 
because it posed a greater danger to the work of God. See, persecution from the outside makes life uncomfortable. Persecution from the outside can make life dangerous and put pressures, uncomfortable and difficult pressures on us, even to the point of sacrificing life. And we know this to be true, right? We all know the images that have been filling our feed from groups like ISIS out there that that just hate, hate. The idea that there is a God outside of their own, that is any concept that there might be a God who, who, who leads the God Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the, the God, our God. And so they try to destroy his followers, right? Persecution is hard. It's unpleasant. It's difficult. But you know what it does? It purifies the church. When pure, pure persecution rises, um, it has a purifying force on the people inside the church. It forces them to move into greater dependence on God. It forces them out of their position of self-satisfaction and self-protection and comfort. It forces them into the position they should be already in, that position of complete dependence on God, (laughs) right? It forces them. And as they get forced into that position, they start discovering the beauty and the freedom and the power and the joy that flows into our lives when we are what we were created to be, which is completely dependent. Revolving around His glory instead of trying to establish our own. Persecution is hard, it's ugly, and it's difficult, but God uses it to purify His church, and He uses it to drive His mission. (laughs) People that are being persecuted are some of the most powerful witnesses for the gospel of Christ. Because as they get pushed more and more deeply into that place of dependence and start discovering more and more of the beauty that is hidden in true relationship with God, they are lit up more and more with a need to share it. Compare that to the sin of faking. See, the sin of faking threatens to corrupt the church. Not persecute it, not purify it, but corrupt it from the inside out. If Ananias and Sapphira had succeeded, they would have replicated. There would have been more who would have seen what they did and followed their example. The message they would have received is this is how you get ahead in this community. This is, this is how, and, and, and that subtle lie that God is not trustworthy, that God is not all glorious, that God is not all satisfying would have been sown in the fertile soil of that young and impressionable church. Others would have seen what they did. Others would have believed the lie that they believed, that this is how it works. This is how you get ahead. And at this point in the story, God simply would not allow that corrupting force to take root. At this point in the story, the soil is too soft. The DNA is not set. He will purify his church. And he does. He needed the church to be pure and passionate because it was given an incredible task, right? To start in Jerusalem, move out to Judea and Samaria and, and, and to the ends of the earth. And he would use persecution to make that happen, by the way. The persecution that is surrounding this chapter is part of God's plan to both purify but also push out the church on mission so they don't get too comfortable in their experience of God's grace in Jerusalem. They are to carry God's grace out to the surrounding regions, which which will require sacrifice and difficulty and hardship. He's going to push them out in that direction. But in this stage, 
He wants the experience that's pushed out to be pure. And in this stage, that means the elimination of those that would lie about grace. So he killed them. He killed them. And that had its proper effect in the church, right? Verse 11. It's repeated several times in this passage, but the culminating verse, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, this isn't the fear of terror. This isn't the fear of, 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 oh my goodness, I thought God was loving and merciful, but I guess he's not. This wasn't the fear that God's not approachable. This isn't the fear that God doesn't forgive sin. This is the fear of respect. This is the fear that purifies our motives and challenges our heart. It's the fear that wakes us up instead of allowing us to to simply drowse back off into the sleepiness of sin. It's the fear that clarifies your vision. Our God is a God to be respected. Our God, the maker of heaven and earth, the source of all life, the true glory, the true holy one of the universe is a God to be loved and a God to be feared. Not because he's capricious, not because he's scary, but because he's everything we're not. Because he is all-consuming in his love and in his holiness. And were it not for his grace and were it not for his mercy, each one of us would be destroyed. It is the awe of respect. Everybody walked away from this day knowing that God takes this stuff seriously, right? And that's kind of what happened, right? I mean, this spread, man. This, this was like, this hit the grapevine and it was all over, right? 10,000 people like that knew this thing, right? It was just, everybody's buzzing about, did you hear about Ananias and Sapphira? They're buried right over there, right? I mean, it's, they just knew it, right? And, and it had an effect on the early church, a purifying effect. And there might've been a few people that left the church that day, which was a good thing. A few people that were tempted to show up and fake it. A few people who were looking at this bright and vibrant and shiny new community saying, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be provided for. I just don't believe in their God. Maybe I'll fake it. Yeah, I'm thinking a few of those people might have left. I think there's a few other people who might have been growing a little bit weary in the sacrifice because at this point in the game, some of them had been sacrificing for quite a while, opening up their homes, giving of their food, sacrificing of their money that were reawakened. Man, if I'm going to do it, I better do it for real. I better not let my heart just get into going through the motions, doing the right thing, going through the right motions, pretending. All right, so what do we take away from this? What are we supposed to learn from this, right? As we read this today, what effect should have it have on us? Well, I think it should have the same purifying effect on us today that it had on the early church, truthfully. I mean, that was kind of my burden as I was reading through this and studying it, man. I'm like, Lord, if we can walk away today with a healthy fear, a healthy fear, a reawakened awe at your power, a reawakened amazement at grace. So a few applications for us as we kind of wrap up that I hope I'll drive this home. First of all, I think we need to know that God is love and grace, but God hates sin. 
In our culture especially, this is easy to forget because our culture loves the narrative of a God of love and grace. That's really popular, man. You can be, you can be a Christian and avoid all persecution by just sharing that message. God is love, God is grace. God is love, God is grace. Just never share the part about him hating sin. Right? That's a very inclusive message. That's a very safe message. You can't read a passage like this without having been reinforced deeply in your heart that God is a God of love and a God of grace, and he hates sin. So I want to drive this home. God is love. I want you to hear this. God is gracious and God is merciful. But we should never let that lead us to believe that he doesn't hate our sin. Because all sin misrepresents his nature. All sin misrepresents his character. All sin is cosmic insanity. Where we are trying to get what only God gives in places God doesn't give it. And we are lying about the character and the nature of God. It seeks to rob God of his glory and it enslaves us to the insane futility of trying to find in creation what only the Creator can give. You want to know how much God hates sin? Don't look at Ananias and Sapphira. Look at Jesus. You want to know how much God hates sin? You'll see it right there. Because Jesus, when He became our substitute, bore the penalty of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You want to know how seriously God takes sin? Look at Jesus. If God didn't hate sin with an infinite, righteous, burning anger, Christ's death would make no sense. He died because we deserve death. He died because our cosmic treason was so heinous, so blasphemous, so out of line with what is real and true and beautiful in this universe that it merited the outpouring of the infinite righteous wrath of God. And Jesus, in his love, became the vessel, the embodiment of our sin who suffered the full outpouring of that wrath, that we might be forgiven. God is love. We see that in Jesus. God operates in grace. We see that in Jesus. And God hates sin. We see that in Jesus. Secondly, God is more concerned about the sin in the church than he is the sin in the world. There's a lot of people who are going to disagree with the Bible. A lot of people are going to disagree with with the character and the morals that are put forward, the the stories that are portrayed. There are going to be a lot of people who who, uh, intellectually disagree with it. There are going to be a lot of people who are actually hostile toward it. There are going to be people that uh, blaspheme our God and do it openly. There are going to be people who persecute us and do it openly. And God will deal with that. When he's ready. But this isn't the time for that. 
in this age. This is not the age of God setting all things right. This is the age of the invitation. This is the age of the witness. This is the age in which we've been left here to embody and experience the love of God and invite others into the flow of that love. And what that means is that God isn't interested in helping you win your culture war. Because God has not commissioned you to win. He has commissioned you to be a witness. To be a disciple who makes disciples. And that means the greatest danger we face isn't out there. It isn't a political force or a social change or or a shift in policy or a cultural movement. The greatest threat isn't out there. It is in here. The world may rage against God, but we have the power to misrepresent God. The world may hate God, but we have the power to lie about God. Outsiders may hate our God, and they may even try to kill his followers. But listen to me, they're not the enemies, they're the mission field. You get that? They're not the enemies. They're the mission field. They're the ones we've been commissioned to take the love of God to, to share the grace of God with, to call them to forgiveness and cleansing, the removal of guilt, the removal of shame, and new life in Christ, even if they hate the message and kill the messenger. They're not the enemy. They're the mission. Insiders who lie about God. Insiders who pretend they know God, but don't love God. Insiders who are more concerned about moral behavior than actually having loves ignited by the love of God. They're the enemies of the gospel. See, when we do that, we're in danger of trying to drive our lives the wrong way down a one-way street. And God's going the other way. When we try to misrepresent the character of God, the character of God will always win. When we try to lie about God and pretend this stuff isn't real, God will get his glory. He will not allow our misrepresentation of his character to hinder his mission to share his character. God hates sin. And he is more concerned with sin in the church than he is with sin in the world. Do we get that? Do we have the awakening of a holy and healthy fear of God? Recognizing that judgment begins with the house of God? And while God hates all sin, I think he hates the sin of faking the most. When we pretend to have tasted deeply of God's grace, but we deny its reality in our lives. When we say the right things, and go through the right motions. 
and have the right moral foundations and character in our life. But when you get down to the heart of it, there's a heart cold and dead to the love of God unresponsive to grace, despising the work of Christ. We'll claim the benefit, but thank you very much. We'll live our own lives. We'll set our own course. We'll, we'll fix our own problems. We'll take the benefit without allowing it to break our hearts in beautiful ways. Our final point, God judged Jesus and will discipline his children. I think this is an important point to end on because what I want you to hear is this. Jesus took sin's penalty. In our fear of God, we can never lose sight of this. Jesus is the only Savior. We don't save ourselves by getting our hearts right. We don't save ourselves by fixing ourselves. We don't, even here, we don't save ourselves by stop being fake. Jesus is the only one that saves, right? He is the only one that took the penalty of our sin. But while he took the penalty of our sin, he is active in our lives to remove the power of sin. He wants to change us, right? He loves us as we are. He loves us in spite of where we are, but he will not leave us where we are. You guys understand the difference between um, conviction and condemnation? Conviction comes from God. Condemnation comes from the enemy. Conviction leads us to change. Condemnation leaves us hopeless. Darren um, Patrick, who was my pastor for years um, over at the Journey in St. Louis, who is our, they're our parent church, they, they sent us out. He had this illustration that has always stuck with me, and, and uh, I've used it here before, we're going to use it again this morning, but I want you to, it's a little silly, but I want you to put up with me, okay? So take your finger, put it up. This is how I know if you're asleep, okay? Now stick it right here in the soft part of your shoulder and push harder harder. Now leave it there. You think you could ignore that? You think you can, you're like, I'm letting off. Now push deeper. Yeah. Okay. You can let go. Now, if you had that there all day long, you'd be kind of annoyed with yourself, right? Stop poking me, right? You can stop that, right? Here's the thing. God's conviction comes in. It is discomfort. It is painful. It is unpleasant, but it is specific. And it's usually God highlighting a specific area of our lives where he is saying to us, this is the place we're going to work on now. This is what we're going to change. This is where I'm going to invite you into re uh, repentance, right? Repentance is a beautiful word. Repentance is God's gift of change. Without repentance, we could never change. Without repentance, we would be locked in our sinful self-centeredness and destroy ourselves, right? So God says, this is where I'm gonna give you the gift of repentance, right? So when God convicts us, He's not rejecting us. He's loving us. When God convicts us, he, he isn't saying, I don't love you and you better fix this because if you, if you fix this, I'll love you more. Or if you fix this, then, I'll, then I might actually accept you. What he's saying is, I love you so much, I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring this area of discomfort into your life. And that suffering is unpleasant. Let's just be honest. It, it, can, be, it, can, be, it can take any form, physical, emotional, financial, God works through all those means to bring discomfort, but it's for the purpose of highlighting an area in our life where he wants to set us free, right? Condemnation, on the other hand, is this blanket that comes over us that says you're worthless and useless and you'll never change. Sometimes we mix up the two voices and we think the condemnation is God. It's not. That's the enemy. Conviction is always driven by grace toward hope. 
Here's an area where you need to change, an invitation to change. And it may be scary and it may be hard because the things he wants to change in your, in your heart may be things that you really, they may be lies that are very deep-seated that you love them, right? My identity is wrapped up in this. I, my security is wrapped up in this. My good is wrapped up in this. And God's like, no, I'm going to set you free from that thing because it's hindering you. It's blocking you. It is not me, right? God judged Jesus for our sin and he disciplines his children. He, he brings conviction, right? Conviction is this discipline. It's the application of suffering to bring about healthy change. Paul told the Corinthians that, that they were just a messed up church at, at later stage in church growth and, and, and they were getting together for the Lord's Supper and some were getting drunk and feasting and others were actually going home hungry. They didn't even have enough to eat. And Paul's like, man, you guys are missing the whole point of a love feast, right? Communion's not supposed to be like that. And that's why God's disciplining you. He says, some of you are even sick. Some of you are physically ill because God is bringing discipline into your lives to, to, to bring this, to highlight this to you. Some of you have even died. See, sometimes God's discipline moves even to the point of removal of life where God says, all right, I've invited you to change. I have invited you to repent. And at this stage, this critical stage, if you don't change, I'm going to take you out. Not because he doesn't love us, but because sometimes that's part of his plan. Let me ask you this. Ananias and Sapphira, were they believers? We don't know, but I think so. It is possible that God struck them dead, not because he hated them, but because he loved them. And he loved his church. It is possible that Ananias and Sapphira transferred immediately from the presence of, of being in sin and lying to Peter to the presence of Christ. And in so doing, found the warm embrace of a God who loved them and had cleansed them and had forgiven them for their sin. I don't know. I can't tell you whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were true believers. What I can tell you is their salvation wasn't contingent on whether or not they sinned in this instance. Their salvation wasn't contingent on them getting this right. In this situation, God simply said, I can't let this be. This cannot stand. And you are going to work for my glory by being an example of what not to do. God brings discipline, but he always brings an invitation first. I don't know if you noticed that with Sapphira. It's clearly highlighted there. Sapphira comes in three hours later, and she comes into the apostles, and, and, the, and, and they're like, Peter's like, hey, tell me about this land you sold. Tell me about the price. It's an invitation, an invitation to repent, an invitation to, to honesty, an invitation to come out from behind the bushes where she was hiding, like Adam and Eve, right, hiding behind the bushes of her own self-glory, her own self-plan, her own self-glory. Will you come out and be honest? Will you come out to the realm of grace? There was an invitation, and it was followed by discipline when she refused it. Where is God inviting you out of the bushes right now? Where are you hiding? Where are you faking it? Will you respond to the invitation to come out? You got nothing to prove. You got nothing to hide. Christ is your record, not you. Christ is your glory, not you. God has, has, has established your love, not you. 
You have no shame so great, no guilt so heavy that Christ cannot cleanse it, remove it, and set you free. Why are you hiding? And know this, if you resist the invitation, believer, God will, in his love, bring discipline into your life because he will not leave you unchanged. He will not let you receive the grace that is extended to us in Christ and not be changed by that grace into his glory. In the end, God wants you to realize that he is all that we have. And he wants you to be completely grateful because he is all you need. All right, I'm going to put some questions up on the overhead. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to ask you to pray. Let God speak to your heart. Let the Spirit of God invite you and change you and whatever God wants to do with you. We're going to create a little bit of space for that to happen. I'm going to put some questions on the overhead to help lead you um, if, if your Spirit wants to lead you in that way. We're going to share communion together in a moment. We do that every week, but we'll, we'll introduce that and explain it in a moment. For now, let me pray for us as we go into a time of response. Father God, I thank you that you are infinitely patient. It doesn't seem like it. when we read a passage like this, it seems like your patience snapped and, and, and in a moment you, you just got angry. But Lord, we know this was not a demonstration of you snapping. It was a demonstration of you cleansing. And I like to believe that even now, if Ananias and Sapphira were believers, they are praising you and thanking you that you got your glory out of their broken motivations. Father, I pray that this passage will have a cleansing effect on our hearts, even as it did in the early church, that as we consider what you did and how it affected them, it will have a similar effect on us, that we will be filled with great fear. Not the terror of your presence or the misrepresentation of your righteousness, but the awe that comes from knowing we worship the one true God the one who is truly holy, righteous, good, fully satisfying, truly delightful. And your love is so persistent and so fierce that you will not let us stay unchanged. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.